Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning in the name of Jesus. We are thankful that we can come to you this morning because of what Jesus did in coming forth into this world at his incarnation and in his perfect ministry. We thank you for the message he proclaimed and the message he fulfilled. We thank you for the ongoing work that you're doing in our hearts. And we confess this morning that we need that ongoing work. We need to be reminded and washed clean this morning once again by your Holy Spirit through your Holy Word. So we pray that as we read through Mark this morning, as we study Mark, we pray that you would study our hearts and that you would open our eyes to see the beauty and wonder of Jesus this morning so that we would be astonished by him, astonished by his proclamation, astonished by his perfect ministry, and that that astonishment will move us and motivate us in our ministry to declare his message with compassion, with zeal, and with with everything we have in us. We pray that we would exalt Jesus as we study your word. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please open God's word with me to Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 1. And we're going to begin reading this morning at verse 14, and I'm going to read down to 39. I'm picking up where we left off last week in 38 this morning, but I need to read this entire section so you have a full context of what's going on and understand the flow of thought here in this passage. Now hear the word of the Lord in Mark 1.14 this morning. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed. So that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once, his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came 
and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And the fever left her, and she began to serve him. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go. Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also for that. For that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. After he announced that this is why he had come. Last week, as we covered verses actually 35 to 38a, I I told you in this passage that gospel ministry, the, the ministry we're involved in, gospel ministry must be marked out like Jesus' ministry was marked out. It should be marked out by prayerful direction. We saw that in verse 35. And it should be marked out by persistent proclamation. We saw that in the rest of the passage. That was the example that Jesus was setting for his disciples there. And I mentioned that we should follow Jesus' example as his disciples today. But what I didn't mention was this. Um, We need to know something deeper about Jesus' ministry. His, his authoritative teaching, his personal compassion, his prayerful direction, his persistent proclamation are far more than mere examples for us today. We can learn and we should learn from our master, but there's much more going on in the gospel of Mark than a bunch of <laughs> what would Jesus do principles. Much more going on here. Jesus' ministry and proclamation were motivated by his divine vocation, his divine calling. And so we need to understand something about Jesus' ministry this morning. We need to understand that Jesus' ministry was, was the ministry of God's Messiah. And in that case, it is completely, uniquely his ministry. And we can't emulate that part of his ministry. If you just look through this section that we've read... And, and think through it a little bit, you can see that only Jesus, only Jesus back there, in, actually in verse 21, only Jesus speaks with sovereign authority because he is God the Son. Only Jesus exhibits divine compassion in the synagogue because he is the creator of man. And only Jesus submits his life completely to God the Father's will and direction because they are in perfect union Only Jesus proclaims God's message without distraction because that is Jesus' eternal vocation. He is the eternal word of God, the logos that proceeds from God. His vocation is to be the perfect proclaimer. And what we need to understand is he's not just an example here. He is someone we can look to as an example, but this is not all his ministry is consisting of. Jesus is basically everything we are not. 
And He, in God's grace, becomes our perfect substitute here. In Mark chapter 1, His Word alone, Jesus' Word alone, corrects the religious in the synagogue and sets free the captives powerfully. In Mark chapter 1, His love alone, Jesus' love alone, restores the sick and the spiritually impoverished passionately there as He goes throughout that city and heals those people all night. In Mark chapter 1, His life, Jesus' life, is submitted perfectly to God the Father's will continually throughout His ministry. In chapter 1, Jesus' mouth alone proclaims the truth about God and blesses God's name persistently. Jesus does everything we want to do, and He does it perfectly. He is our substitute. He is far more than just an example. We, as His disciples, are commanded and called to speak God's Word, to exhibit God's compassion, to submit to God's direction, and proclaim God's message persistently. Have you done that this week? Persistently? Unceasingly? You haven't. Neither have I. But Jesus did. So we we don't just look at His example. We must also look to Him in faith, trusting that His work is what will fuel our work. That is the power behind our ministry. If we we don't look at him in that sense, we'll begin to gauge our ministry and our success as disciples based on our consistency, and we will grow weary. You can't do what Jesus does perfectly. So you must look to him and his ministry to actually fuel your ministry. We must look at Jesus' ministry because his vocation is that he has came to be God's Messiah, God's anointed messenger of grace. He is our Messiah. He is our righteous substitute and our perfect preacher. Aren't you glad there's a perfect preacher out there somewhere? And he's here with us this morning in Mark. Jesus is, is the fuel that drives our ministry. We can't emulate him perfectly, but we can look to what he has done and see his completed work and his authority, and we can rejoice in that, and we can follow after him joyfully this morning. Just understand this. You can jot this down. This might be helpful. Jesus' substitution is the reason for our persistent proclamation. That's the order we need to keep that in. Persistent proclamation comes because of Jesus' perfect substitutionary work in preaching, in ministry. His perfection is the joyful force that should motivate our proclamation and our ministry. I say all that in, in way of introduction to this text this morning, lest we make Jesus just a moral example for us. He is far more than that. Today, I hope you can see that, I hope you can see that Thankfulness for Jesus' perfection is what should motivate us to follow Him and be persistent proclaimers of His message. It's joy-driven proclamation. It's not works-driven proclamation. We're not doing it to get His favor, to stay in God's favor. We're doing it because we are in God's favor because of Jesus' grace and His substitutionary life. So today, what I want to do is I want to motivate you to joy-driven proclamation by showing you that Jesus was persistently motivated by His vocation, His calling, His Messiahship. If you go to Mark, there in Mark 138b, 
we can see Jesus' persistent motivation. It says, let us, or he says rather, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. I want you to zoom in on the phrase, why I came out. He came out to preach. That's what he says here. He came out. Now, we could look at this historically and say, well, yeah, he came out from obscurity at his baptism. And he was flung into public ministry from that point forward. And that's true. But that's not all that's going on here. That's not all that he means in that phrase, I came out for this reason, to preach. Jesus came out or came into the world at his incarnation. And he did so for a purpose, because of his vocation. He came to proclaim that salvation is from God. God sent forth his Son, and Jesus came willfully. He came forth to proclaim that God would send forth someone to buy back his people from their sin, that someone would come and redeem them. And Jesus says, I am he. He came out to become our redeemer. He came out to proclaim that salvation is from God alone. God initiates it. God completes it. God motivates it. He sends forth his son out of love. What I want to impart to you this morning is God loves you if you're a believer. God has set his love on you as a believer in sending forth his son in time and space to become your perfect substitute, to take your place and accomplish what you and I could never do on our own. And Jesus came out to proclaim this. Look with me at John's gospel. You can kind of see a glimpse of this in John chapter 1. John 1, verse 9 to 14. This tells us that Jesus came out for a reason. And when it refers here in verse 9 to the true light, it's referring to the logos, the word of God, which is Jesus. The true light, verse 9 says, the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. That's speaking of his incarnation, where God the Son took on human flesh and came into this earth as a babe in a manger. He came into the world, it says. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. He is the creator, in other words. And yet, the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Now, notice this verse here, though. This shows that Jesus came to proclaim something. He proclaimed that even though people who had the law and had the revelation of God, they on their own couldn't come to God. God had to come to them. God had to come and make himself known to man. It says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. He gave the right to become children of God. To those, he says in verse 13, who were born not of blood, in other words, not because they were Jewish, not because they were part of the nation Israel, nor of the will of the flesh. It wasn't even because man willed it. Nor of the will of man, but of God. But of God, it says. And the word, that's Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. He came out. He came into the world. Dwelt. He tabernacled. He pitched his tent with man to sympathize with us, to become like us. 
yet without sin. He dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of God's favor and full of God's truth, full of grace and truth. Jesus comes out to show the full glory of God's grace and the full glory of God's truth that man cannot save himself. Therefore, God has intervened in love and sent forth his Son to become our substitute to take our place. He comes out to proclaim that salvation belongs to God. And what I, what I am so amazed by in this passage, and when I read just the simple phrase when Jesus says, this is why I came out, to preach. Preach what? The kingdom of God is at hand. That's what it said in verse 14. He's coming willingly after his baptism, after he is blessed by his Father. He is anointed as the Messiah by the Holy Spirit. He comes out of the water saying, I want to go and proclaim the good news of God. What is the good news? God loves to save sinners by sending forth his Son to become their substitute, to do for them what they can't do for themselves. So we need to understand that when Jesus talks about coming forth, he's coming forth motivated, motivated by God's love for those who cannot and will not ever save themselves. That was the substance of Jesus' sermons. That's what Jesus preached about constantly. And it should be the substance of your proclamation, your witnessing. You should declare the great, great love of God that's manifest in Jesus where he sends forth his son to come into a world of sinners to do for them what they're commanded to do, yet will never do apart from God's initiating grace. And yet he sends forth his son to live a righteous life in their place and then then take their sins and place them on his son and turn his back on his son on the cross, pour out the wrath that we deserved on his son so that in love he would have embraced us and brought us into his kingdom. That's the message Jesus proclaimed. That's the message we need to preach. Listen, election and predestination is not some cold, calculated, Calvinistic doctrine. It is a doctrine of grace and love and mercy that exhibits the glory of God who loves to save sinners through the work of His Son so we can see His glory eternally. That's what Jesus preached about. Jesus came to people who couldn't save themselves. And he proclaimed that God would come forth and do something for them they couldn't do for themselves. We see an example of that in Luke chapter 4. In Luke chapter 4. Luke 4, 16. We get a glimpse of the kind of messages Jesus preached. By this time, actually, this is not in chronological order here in Luke, okay? But by this time, when you come to this section in Luke, by this time, Jesus has already been in his Galilean ministry. He has been healing, and he has been delivering demonic or de- people from demon possession. He's been serving the people, caring for the people. He's been exhibiting grace, God's favor. And he's been preaching about God's truth, that the kingdom was coming with him. And then when you come to this passage... You see that he goes to the synagogue, and this would be typical of his preaching, what he was proclaiming, what he was pointing to. And he came to Nazareth, verse 16 says, where he had been brought up. This was his hometown. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. 
Now, this was the custom when, when a traveling rabbi would come to town, the synagogue leaders would recognize that rabbi, that teacher, and ask them to come forth and preach. And this is how they did it. They would read from the scroll, then they would sit down, and then they would teach. They're not like us. We stand, they sit. It was a different format. Nonetheless, he taught what the word said. Verse 17 says, And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to Jesus. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. <laughs> wow, this is phenomenal. Just, just, just look at this. This is God's providential time. God's, God's exact message that these people needed to hear. And, and this was, this was going to put these religious people off. Because he's going to say, salvation is not of good works. Religion. It's not of being a good Jew. You're not one. Salvation is of God. That's what he's going to say. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And there was like a hush that fell over that congregation. It says, And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This scripture was fulfilled in me, is what he's saying. This scripture points to me as the Messiah. When you read the passage that is quoted from Isaiah in 18 to 19, it's actually a reference to the announcement of the Jewish year of Jubilee. That would be when they looked forward to the setting free of all the captives in Israel. And, and Jesus' announcement here pictures or describes, or this announcement in Isaiah rather, pictures or describes the restoring work of God's Messiah, what he would do. God's anointed messenger, God's Messiah, would come and set Israel free from her captors. Look at verse 18 again. The Spirit of the Lord is on upon me because he has anointed me. Now this, this happened at his baptism. It was visible. It was public. And he says in Mark 1.38, he said that he came to preach. He came out to preach. So that's what he says here. He anointed me to proclaim good tidings, good news to the poor. Now, what's he talking about? Is he just talking about the financially poor? No. When you read the Sermon on the Mount, you know that's not what he's talking about either. He's talking about to those who are spiritually impoverished, destitute due to sin, and those who realize that their sin guilt was weighing them down, strapping them in, and actually restraining them, enslaving them. He says, I've come to tell them good news. You that are recognizing your impoverishment, your inability to bring anything good to God, you're spiritually destitute. That's good news that you recognize that. Because God doesn't receive anyone who comes and says, look what I've done. He receives those who are lowly and meek and bowed low before him saying, I have nothing to bring but my sin. Jesus, save me. 
Then he says this, He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. Well, those who are captured by sin's power, sin's domination, enslaved to it. They're locked down in captivity. He says, I'm coming to set them free. And he says, I'm also coming to bring sight to the blind, those who are blinded by their sin, those who could not see because sin had kept them from seeing the glory of God. He says, I've come to set at liberty those who are oppressed by sin. That's what he's getting at here. He says, I come to proclaim to them that the year of Jubilee has arrived in me. The Messiah's work had begun. He was opening the blinded eyes. He was opening the hearts of sinners to receive God's kingdom. So when Jesus here in this passage proclaims that this scripture has been fulfilled in their hearing, he is really proclaiming that the real jubilee has come, that he was the Messiah, and that God's Messiah would be the one who saves his people from their sins, not their religion, not their pharisaical teachings, but God's Messiah would come in. He came out to proclaim this. Proclaimed that this was the year of the Lord's favor and it has arrived. The kingdom of God is at hand in me. That's why I came out, he says in Mark one thirty-eight. I came out to proclaim the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus' message was about how God's kingdom would invade the world. It's, it's just a miracle Think about how God's kingdom invaded this sinful kingdom. How did God's kingdom invade this world? God the Son wrapped himself in human flesh, humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, to come into the world to save his people, to invade this world with grace and love. That's how God invades the world. That's how his kingdom penetrates this darkness. The light, the true light of Jesus, the love of God incarnate becomes flesh and declares grace and truth to sinners who cannot save themselves. That's why he came out. Jesus came. He came to spread open his arms to receive his children. He came to spread open his arms on a cross so that he could take those same arms and embrace with his nail-scarred hands all the people he purchased with his own blood and carry them into his kingdom eternally. That is what Jesus came forth to proclaim. That's good news, right? That's good news. That's good news from God. That's good news that God has brought to us because we couldn't go to him because of our sin. We didn't even want to come to him because of our sin. So God in love initiates grace in his son. And if you're, if you're thinking about this, if you're wondering about this, and you know your own heart, and you know what your life was like, and you know what your life may be like right now, you may be wondering, why, why, would, Jesus, why would Jesus go through this? Why would Jesus come into this earth as the king of glory and humble himself like a baby and live like a servant and die like a criminal? Why would he do this? I think I know why. And I think that the gospel tells us why. I think I could submit to you that he did this really for one one specific reason. He did this to show you and I God's great 
love. Jesus became flesh to show us the love of God. That's it. That's it. It's not about you going to heaven. It's about you seeing his glory, you seeing his goodness, you seeing his greatness, you seeing his grace, you seeing his love for someone who cannot earn their way to heaven. It's about Jesus showing you God's glorious grace and God's great love. That's that's why he did it. That's sufficient for me. I'll take that. That's enough. I believe that. I trust that. I believe that if God wants to show me how great he is and he wants to send his son to accomplish the work that I could never do and die my death, I'll take that. I'll believe that. I'll run with that and I'll proclaim that till I die. And I pray that I die in this pulpit preaching that. I believe that when you read the Gospels, you see this. I believe when you read the, the, you need to read the whole content of Mark's Gospel. You need to sit down and read all 16 or 15 and a half chapters. It'll open your eyes to see this. It's the love that's driving Jesus immediately here and immediately there and immediately here. It's the love of God for those he would save. Not, not the nation, Israel, but the people in the nation, Israel, that belong to God from before the foundation of the world. Not all of Israel is Israel. And I believe that God did this because we can't. We can't save ourselves. We can't redeem ourselves. And I, and I believe that he did it to show us his love because I, I believe God has shown forth in Scripture historically, as we pointed out in Psalm 136 today, that he has been faithful to show forth loving kindness to sinners. God's love, I believe, initiated my salvation. God's love completed my salvation. And God's love, I believe, motivated Jesus to come and accomplish my salvation. And I believe that because... And you, you should believe this too for the same reason. I believe that because my life, my life could not entice Jesus to love me. I know the depth of my sin. I know my offenses. I know how I have wronged God and others. And I know that I could never woo God to love me by anything I am or anything I do. So therefore, I believe that God loved me first and sent forth his son to be my propitiation, to pay my price. He came to die for me, not because I deserved it or I enticed him to do it, but he did it surely and completely to show us his glorious love and grace. That's why Jesus came out to preach, to show us the grace and love of his father. That's what Jesus, in John's gospel, in the first chapter of John, it talks about how Jesus came out and showed us God. He exegeted God the Father for us. He displayed God's nature. God's nature is what you see in Mark when he goes and touches all night long these defiled and sick people and labors with them, loves them, weeps over Jerusalem's unbelief, raises Lazarus from the dead with tears in his eyes. That is the nature of our God. Don't, don't, ever, don't ever let our theology over, overcome our look at God's compassion and grace. Don't let the theology of, of what we believe in the doctrines of grace become something that's calculated. Let it be something that moves you to compassionate praise and adoration of God. That's what Jesus did. That's what he proclaimed. And, and here's, here's what's so amazing to me as I think about this. He came, he came out... Motivated by God's love for the unlovely. 
I mean, you may be thinking this too about yourself. You know, why would, why would he do this for you? Why would he do this for me? Do you really believe he did this for you? If you really believed he did this for you, it will affect the way you live for him. But you may be thinking, why would, why would he do this? He couldn't love me. I know my sin. I know my hidden sins. I know what nobody else knows. Why would he still love me? I'm unlovely. I have nothing to bring him but my sin. And if you're thinking that, you're, you're in pretty good company. We're all there. None of us are lovely. All of us are sinners. None of us can bring anything to God but our sins. But I have good news. Mark 1.38 says, Jesus came out to proclaim this message to people just like you and I. That's why he came. He came to the unlovely. You read the next few passages in Mark's gospel. He goes to the outcasts. He goes to the rebels. He goes to those that no one would touch. And next week, I'm already looking forward to next week's sermon because I know what he's going to do. He's going to touch someone who, who cannot be touched. And he does it out of love. And he does that for you and I. He touched you when you were defiled and living in your sin. He reached down and he made you a new heart. Remove that heart of flesh, or that heart of stone, and give you a heart of flesh. Do you believe that's why he came out this morning? To proclaim this to you? Do you believe that God would love you so much? Do you believe God would love you so much that he would go to this length, that he would actually. He would actually send forth his righteous, beautiful son who would come into this life that we live, this life of debauchery, this life of evil, and he would have compassion on you and me, and he would live a righteous life and face persecution and ridicule in your place. And then, in his innocence, he would go to a cross, and there your guilt and your filth was laid on his account, and his father turned his back and crushed him. So that God would let you know how much he loves you and wants you to see his grace. Do you believe that? Do you believe that he would show you his love this way? If you do, rejoice. Be a persistent proclaimer of that message. See, that, the accomplished work, the, the vocational work of Jesus, the Messiah's work, is what motivates us to respond, not just emulate but worship in our response to Jesus' accomplishment. And we worship through proclamation, testifying to his greatness, God's love, his grace. God's love is what motivated Jesus to come into the world. And understand this, this is the, this is the part that just blows my mind. He doesn't just come into the world to go to the cross for, oh, just a random group of folks. No, he goes into the world and he comes out to preach this message for his specific people. You, personally. It's your personal sins that are laid on Jesus. It's your personal sins that are atoned for by Jesus. It's your sins that are as gone as far as the east is from the west. It's his righteousness that's actually given directly to you, placed on your account by God's grace. It's personal. He came out to proclaim a personal message. That's why he says, I need to go to these towns, these other towns. Because there are people there. 
I have much people in that city. He goes to get his people. The king comes to rescue those who belong to his kingdom. He comes so you can see how glorious our king truly is eternally. That's the glorious part of our message. Jesus comes out to save us from what we deserved. He saved us from our, our sin and the punishment of God's wrath. Then he ends up giving us something which is just an abounding grace, a super abounding grace. He gives us eternal life in his presence. I mean, it's enough. I would be happy with no damnation in hell. That's good. I don't deserve any more than that. I don't even deserve that. But no, no, no. Our God is so gracious and so loving. He says... Not only am I going to take away your sin, I'm going to give you something you can't deserve, you can't earn. I'm going to give you Jesus' righteousness. Oh, that way, that way in heaven, for eternity, you can just continually praise my name because I am good and I am loving and I am compassionate toward people like you. So here's my gift. Take it. Take it. What's it do to you? What's that gift do to you this morning? Do you bottle it up or do you want to share it? You're going to share it in eternity. Let's share it now. This is his message to us. It's his message that comes to us through Jesus' proclamation, his preaching. It's motivated by God's love. And listen, if you're unsure, if you're unsure this morning that God, God would love you that much, then here's what I want to do this morning. I want to beg you this morning, today, I want to beg you to behold the power of God's love in the proclamation of God's word in Ephesians chapter 1 this morning. Go with me to Ephesians chapter 1 and behold the power of God's love in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3 this morning. This is what Jesus came out to display and proclaim And this should take away any doubt in your heart of how much God loves you, what he would do to show you his love. This is the power of God's love. In verse 3 it says, it just starts off with blessing God. God gets all the glory. God gets all the adoration. God gets all the praise, right? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us, us, notice this, it's personal, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And then catch this amazing truth, in love he predestined us for adoption. It's personal. Adoption is personal. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved, that's Jesus, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. That's why Jesus came out. Look at the love of God for you. It was planned before you. It was planned before you were anything other than God's object that he picked out before the foundation of the world. He picked you out 
And he said, I will set my love on this one through the work of my son, Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus comes out to declare this. Jesus comes out to say, God saves his people from their sin through me to show them his love. Just just think about this. Before the world was created, before anything was created, the triune God counseled together to display his love and grace by sending forth God the Son, Jesus Christ, to be your personal substitute if you but believe and repent of your sins. He sent forth Jesus to live your life, the life that we're commanded to live. He did that. He lived in perfect obedience to all of God's commands for us. That's that's what God did to ensure that you received his love. Jesus accomplished what we could never accomplish. And then, in the amazing act of God's mercy and grace, he not only sends Jesus to be our substitute positively as a righteous substitute, he also sends him to be our propitiation as our sin substitute. He sends Jesus to the cross in our place, the place where we deserve to be for eternity in God's wrath. He sends Jesus there to uphold his justice that was due our sins that we have committed against God. God says, if you sin, you must die. Therefore, Jesus comes to die in our place. And that same Jesus didn't stay dead, though, did he? Three days later, what happens? In God's love, Jesus is raised from the dead. He displays God's love through his authority and through his purity that brings him forth from the grave and brings forth with him all the people that died with him on the cross. They come forth in new life. They're granted eternal life through his resurrection, through his propitiation, through his substitution. And I want you to know something. All of that was personal to Jesus. On the cross, he is, he is taking your sins and he knows who you are. He knows what those sins are. He is there receiving the wrath for you and he is thinking about you on the cross. And when he rises from the grave, he is carrying you with him into the heavenlies and you are seated with him there now. You are there. Your position is there. You are eternally secure in this one who came out to proclaim God's love. That's what we see him doing when he begins his preaching ministry in Mark chapter 1. God set forth his love personally and intentionally for you if, again, you but believe in Jesus' message. If you believe in that message, you will repent of what drove Jesus to that cross You will confess your sins against a holy and righteous God that drove Jesus to go to the cross to take your place. You will repent and believe. And all who believe and repent give evidence that God has in love predestined you for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the will and the purpose of God to the praise and the glory of God's great grace. That's why Jesus came out. Do you see that? In Mark 1.38, He says, this is why I came out. I came out to proclaim the love of God towards sinners personally. And even when you read Ephesians and that whole passage that I read earlier, you know he he doesn't specify an ethnic group. He is saving a people, unworthy people, sinners. 
God in his love is adopting individuals. He's choosing you and you. He's choosing you. He's picking you. He walks into this filthy orphanage of this world. He comes into this filth and this mire, and he looks at a a bunch of orphan children who are living in this filth and loving it. And he says, I'll take you. I want you. Jesus is dying for you. And he picks you up. He cleans you off in the blood of his son. And he calls you his own. He adopts you by his grace to show you his great love. And it's personal. And I know it's personal because when you go back, go back with me to Mark. Just so obvious that it's personal. Jesus says in verse 38, let's go on. Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. Then it says in verse 39, and he went throughout all Galilee. That's, that's, that's there for a reason. He went out throughout all Galilee. He, he basically spread out, going from village to village, ministering. And he ministered the good news. He ministered this good news in a region that was full of outcasts and rejects. He's going to specific places that he intended to go to to deliver this message to a people who really don't deserve to hear it. He doesn't go to Jerusalem, you notice? He doesn't go to where the religious elite are. He goes to those people who are destitute and impoverished, spiritually speaking. He goes into a region that is marked out by being mixed with Gentiles. He doesn't go to the religious Jews. He goes to the outcasts first. And I believe in verse 39, if you look on your outline, I believe in verse 39, we see why and how Jesus persistently pursued his vocation. He goes into these other regions, this other area of Galilee, from this Capernaum area. He goes on into other places because his divine calling as Messiah, his vocation, drove him out there to do that. His vocation, his calling was to be the restorer of God's people, Jew and Gentile alike. In other words, his Messiahship was to drive him to go out into the world to be the Savior and Redeemer of God's elect people, the people God has chosen in love. In love he predestined. That's who he's talking about. So Jesus goes throughout all Galilee preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. He's persistent. He, he doesn't say, okay, I need to go where the big crowd is at Jerusalem and start with the synagogues there and the tabernacle or the, the temple. Let's, let's work down from there and then reach out. No, he's persistent in his, his approach to let's go to the places where no one wants to go. Let's go where this gospel has not been made known. Let's go to the destitute. Let's go to the impoverished and let's do it personally. There were over 200 small villages in this region. And I don't know that he hit every one of them, but I know he, he says here that he went throughout all that region. And he went there intentionally. And he went there personally, pursuing God's calling on his life to display God's compassion and mercy. Again, he went to the Galilean region. He went to an unsavory place. He went to an unsavory people, an unpopular people. He went to a place full of rejects. You know, that's, that's really the way God has always worked. He doesn't come for the noble. He doesn't come for those who think they are spiritually okie-dokie. He doesn't come for those who, who think they are 
able to do something to bring to God, to earn God's favor. He doesn't come to them because they are in their pride. They are offensive to Him. He comes to those who are meek and lowly, broken, understanding that they have nothing to offer God and they need mercy. That's always been the way He has worked. Look with me back in Luke to see that, an example of that. In Luke 4, again, 4.25. At this time, at the same time he preached this message out of Isaiah, a little further on, he began to rebuke the religious people of the day there in Nazareth. He began to tell them, if you don't receive me as the Messiah, let me just show you what the Messiah is supposed to do. He is supposed to go to the outcasts. And Jesus does that. We know that Paul does that. Paul goes to the Jew first, and when they reject Jesus, he then turns to the Gentiles. But here we can see this has always been God's pattern, to go to those who can't come to him. The religious and the hypocrites, they think they can pretend on the outside and look righteous and please God, and he doesn't come to them. He comes to those who know their distance from God. They know that they're separated from God, and those he comes and he opens their eyes and says, look at my love for someone like you. Verse 25 says, But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over the land. And Elijah, notice this, Elijah, the prophet of Israel, Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Oh, not just a widow. She's an impoverished widow. She's a widow with no money, with no food. She's a widow who has a son that dies and needs life. But she's also a Gentile woman in a Gentile land. And he says, in contrast to the the ones who think they're religiously okay with God, he says, Elijah doesn't come to you with the good news. He goes to the destitute, the spiritually impoverished, and he brings them life and riches that come from God. Then notice this, the next example Jesus gives, verse 27. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Again, Elisha, the prophet of God, goes not to the lepers in Israel, who apparently even had a sense of pride and arrogance because they were Jewish. He doesn't go to them. He sends Elisha to Naaman, the Syrian. And this, this is even worse than the Jewish mindset. Oh, Naaman's a Gentile. That's true here. But he's not only a Gentile. He is actually a Gentile warrior who fought for Syria against Israel. And yet in the story of Naaman, Naaman is told that the prophet can't come to him, basically, that he just needs to do what the word of the prophet says from God. And by faith, after a rebuke, That man, Naaman, goes into the water and is washed seven times and comes forth clean because the word of God came to him. The word of God reached out and cleansed that filthy man, removed his spots and his defiled condition. And that's the way God has always worked. God has always worked that way, and he works that way with you and me. Good news comes to the outcast like us. Good news comes to those who are cast off, and it's coming from God. It's coming from God, and God's blessings come with it. Good news comes to those who are living in a defiled, sinful condition when they hear the words of Jesus. 
There's good news for the defiled. There's good news for the corrupt. There's good news for those separated. God will cleanse them. God will make them whole. God will restore life to the spiritually impoverished. Jesus said that's why he came out, was to proclaim that the kingdom had come with him. Jesus goes through, you know, Jesus' whole ministry, when you see him healing people and raising people from the dead, he's saying, look, this is what the natural order should look like when the Messiah is here. No more death. No more sickness. That's the good news of God's love. He's going to restore his people completely. But again, when you read this account in Mark 139, it doesn't say that Jesus goes to proclaim that message to Jerusalem first. And I believe the reason is, is because there, there were self-righteous people. There were people who believed they were saved by their religion, saved by their works. And so he does not go there first. Instead, he goes to Galilee to proclaim good news to a spiritually impoverished people who need a Savior and know it. God opened their eyes through Jesus' preaching. And Jesus pursued his vocation in going out to those outcasts. And Jesus pursued his vocation beyond Galilee and beyond Jerusalem, finally. Jesus finally pursued his vocation completely when he went outside of Jerusalem to a place called Golgotha. He pursued his vocation as God's Messiah, as God's proclaimer of good news when he went to the cross on Mount Calvary. He went out there where the outcasts dwell, where we belong, separated from God in a place of judgment. That's where Jesus' message came out to be ultimately proclaimed. It came out there and was proclaimed loudest to outcasts and sinners like us at the cross. Look with me to see that in Luke's gospel. Luke 22, Luke twenty two thirty two. Here we see, this is just amazing to me. Just again, don't ever let the theology over, overcome the, the passion and the love of God that is revealed in scripture here. Jesus in this passage is personally proclaiming God's love to an individual while hanging on a cross, dying under the weight of our sin. He's preaching the good news. This is amazing. Look at verse 32. It says, 23, 23, 32, sorry. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him, with Jesus. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And, and just look at this. And Jesus said, this is to the people crucifying him, Father, Forgive them. He's, he's speaking to the Father for those people. Father, forgive them. He's interceding while they're killing him. For they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. They didn't have ears to hear. And the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him. You want to see the the depth of our depravity? These rulers knew he was innocent. And they're mocking a beaten, bloody Jesus in their self-righteous religious clothing, speaking as the officers of God, cursing God's Son. 
He saved others. Let him save himself. There's such mockery in this. If, if he is the Messiah of God, his chosen one, the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, are you not the Messiah, the Christ? Save yourself and us. But, this is the personal love of God exhibited at the cross. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Do you know what you see in verse 41? You see a confession of guilt and you see an expression of faith in Christ. He recognizes the innocence of Christ and he confesses his own sin. He is repenting and believing right on on the cross beside Jesus. And he said, Jesus, and he cries out in mercy, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was a personal proclamation from the cross, from the Messiah's lips that said, here is God's love for you. It took you coming to a cross to see my glorious grace. But here you are with me, and brother, you're going to be with me forever in paradise because God has set his love on you. And he will bring you into his kingdom. That was Jesus' message to the very end. He was a persistent Proclaimer, a persistent personal proclaimer. Therefore, we as his disciples should rejoice in his persistent, perfect ministry. We should respond to his humility in prayer, his personal care, and his personal preaching and proclamation to those who are outside of Israel. We should respond with rejoicing and we should respond with proclamation. We should respond in worship today because Jesus came to show us how much God loves us and wants us to see his love eternally. I just want you to be overwhelmed this morning as I have been overwhelmed by the persistent ministry, perfect ministry of Jesus in chapter one of Mark's gospel. He came out to show us God's great love and he showed it to us most clearly on that cross where we were hanging with him we were dying with him and then we were raised with him out of that tomb and we will be with him by God's grace for eternity and this morning you need to rejoice in that as a believer but this morning if you're here and you are not yet convinced of God's love I want to beg you this morning to look to Jesus's proclamation Look at the proclamation that was made clearly on the cross. Look at that picture of God's grace that was extended to you who are separated by your sin. 
He has accomplished all that is required for sinners. Look to him and be saved this morning. Let's pray and rejoice in that. Father, we pray that everyone here has called upon you and rejoiced in your son's work. We pray that we would see that Jesus came out to accomplish what we could not do. And Jesus, we thank you for coming out and proclaiming this message persistently and perfectly so that we could rejoice with you eternally. We thank you, Jesus, for saving us, and we thank you that you will save others in this church building. We thank you that you will move in a mighty way upon our children because you seek the outcast, you seek the sinners, you save your children from their sin, and you do it perfectly, and you do it eternally. So we thank you this morning for that. We rejoice in the hope of eternal life that was secured by Jesus on the cross, not by our works, not by our religion, but by Christ alone. And it's something we can rejoice in now and we can rejoice in in eternity. But now, Father, I pray that we as a church would rejoice in it persistently. I pray that we individually would be overwhelmed by the love of God that is poured out on us in Christ's message and that we would take that message and share it with others continually in our city, in our families in our own hearts. I pray that we would preach the gospel to ourselves every time we doubt your love. I pray that we would find confidence and grace when we are struggling with your acceptance of us. We know that we are accepted perfectly in the Redeemer, Jesus. Therefore, let us rejoice in that perfect acceptance and that perfect atoning work that brought us into union with you. I pray, Father, that you would be blessed through that. I pray, Son, that you would be blessed through that. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would open our eyes so that we could bless you in that as you work to teach us and to humble us and convict us and point us to Jesus. We thank you, our God. We thank you for your great, great love and grace that was manifest in God, the Son's ministry. We thank you for that, Jesus. Amen.
for all. 